in an introduction to Joyce Meyer. I mean, Joyce <laughs> I know that voice anywhere. <laughs> oh, it, this is a wow, look at all of you. I can remember, thank you. I, I can remember, um, it has to be over 15 years ago, I was sitting in an outpost for the very first time, a brand new believer. Uh, I met the Lord 20 years ago. 23 years ago, um, but I was still in a, 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 and I'll share that story, but I was still in addiction, and the Lord delivered me in 1998, which is powerful, and I'll share that as well, but I remember my eyes were opened for the very first time in ways that no one ever told me was possible. And I came to an outpost because it was a, a brochure was sent to me anonymously. No one invited me to come. It just came in the mail. And I opened it up and I said, oh, there's other people. There's other people in there. And so I, I found my way to an outpost and I sat in the chair, very similar to some of you who are here for the very first time. And, and I remember hearing the stories and thinking, you know what? There were other people that, that had the same needs and um, have the same questions and have the same hurts that me that I have and I just want to share it with other people and see if anyone uh, would receive me just as I was and Outpost gladly did I made friends and friends that uh, again we have reconnected a couple times over the years but it seems like whenever we come back it's as though time has never left um, on the brochure, it shares a little bit about who I am as far as where I was before and, and being an atheist for 30 years. It can be kind of a, a shock to a lot of people that that is possible. But I want to just share with you, it's not a shock to those who are living in the world today because there are so many people out there who have never heard about God, and I was one of them. I, I love uh, this story that Joyce shared about being lost you know, not even know that she was lost. And I, I have to say, the only thing worse than being lost and not knowing it is being lost and no one's looking for you. That's a reality in my life because I had so alienated everyone because of my uh, atheist views that no one really cared. And so it seemed. But I was a little girl, and, and I, I was brought up in a family, and I was brought up in a really loving family. I mean, my mother and father loved me. I can say that, and they were very moral people, but my mother, my mother was a Mormon, and my father was an atheist. That's a little confusing, okay? <laughs> and I remember being brought up not knowing exactly God was never talked about in, at home. But I have a lot of great memories when I was a little girl. And one of the things that I can remember, my father's claim to fame, was that, um, are there any really young women here? I'm just trying to look around. Everyone looks so young. I don't have my glasses on. I, I, um, I'm just kidding. I just met the new um, schoolmaster. And I said, my goodness, you look young. <laughs> That's a compliment when you're my age, right? <laughs> but the thing is, is that my father always said, you know you're getting older when the police start looking younger. <laughs> man, they look young. And so do the schoolmasters, but, but he is a mature man, and he was, oh, what a delight to meet him. But my father's claim to fame when we were little, when I was little, about, oh, I would say five, five years old, was that we were the first uh, family on the block to get a color TV. 
Do you remember? Does anyone remember a time before Cutler TV? Okay. All right. So they were huge. They were huge. And I, I remember the day that my father brought that home, he had the entire neighborhood sitting in the living room. The entire neighborhood because the, everyone wanted to see this color TV. And it was so big, it was like um, six people had to carry it in like a pole bear. You know, this piece of furniture. And my father had the, the honor to plug it in. Now my father, just visualize this, okay? So the color TV was put in place and everything was cleared out and the whole neighborhood's standing there. My father takes the plug and he plugs it in and he stands there and he pushes the button and it starts out with this little tiny dot. It's bigger and bigger and bigger. I'm trying to see it get into focus. And I'm sitting in Indian style in the very front row, so excited about this color TV because there was this just big thing made about it. Now, my father didn't sit down and watch the color TV with everyone else. He stood there next to the color TV watching us watch the color TV. Just <laughs> trying to see what the expression was. And so I remember watching this and looking up at him, watching us, watching him, and watching this. Do you remember, and I can remember this so well, so it's like one of my very first memories, but the NBC Peacock over That happened. That happened that day, that morning. And the voice that went like this. In living color. <laughs> okay, so anyway, that's a big memory. That happened on a Tuesday. The, the next um, weekend, Saturday, the ice capades were coming into town. Now, as a four or five-year-old, you don't know how to say escapades. You have absolutely no idea what the escapades are. But you know that it is as good as color TV. Yeah? Because everyone's talking about it. And so that day, we were living in Arizona, and it was in August. So it was like 119 degrees. And so just to go anywhere where there's ice is good enough for me. So we went there, and we're sitting in this huge um, coliseum with all this ice everywhere. And, um, and the lights go down. And I'm like, oh, I can't wait. Because it was pure black. You couldn't see your hand in front of you. It was pitch black. And then all of a sudden, the lights came on. And there they were. All these skaters. They were running all They're not running. They were ice skating all over with these feathers and sequins and beautiful lights. And I could hardly contain myself. I, was, I, could, I, I just had something to say. So I stood up on my chair. Five years old. I stood up on my chair. And I said, look. It's a living color. <laughs> okay, so um, I remember looking around and everyone's laughing at me. They're not laughing with me. I just I noticed they were looking at me, pointing at me, and laughing. And I can I just so remember that because the eyes are on me. Of course, they're laughing at a little five-year-old, right, and a cute little thing. But I didn't see it as cute. I was wondering why they were looking at me and not looking at the skaters because it wasn't living color. Can't you see it? Can't you see it? It would be some 30 years later that I would meet the Lord Jesus and after having not only not knowing God as an atheist, but spending all of my time trying to disprove the existence of God and persecuting Christians for their faith, and ridiculing them for all this, what I thought was fairy tale and fable. I remember when the moment that the, my eyes was able to see that I was finally found, that somebody literally was looking after me, even though the whole world didn't show it, but someone greater than me was literally looking for me when I was lost and didn't even know it.
And to be able to see in living color, I just, I just couldn't believe it. And all I wanted to do as Stephanie was singing that song, and chills were running up and down my, my spine. And I, right now, I can feel it right now. I feel like I'm walking on goosebumps right now. Just hearing your voice to shout from mountains. All I've ever wanted to do from that day forward is say, can't you see? He's in living color. But the world just laughs at me. They look at me and laugh, just like I was when I was five years old. Can't they see it? Well, the thing is, is that no, we can't see it. The world can't see it until we allow ourselves the opportunity to open up just an opportunity for faith to come in and to say, it is real. It is real. It's not fairy tale fable. Little girl, I was a little girl and maybe had the pig tails, but I had buck teeth and my teeth stuck out in front of my face and I couldn't close my lips. As I grew up, I was one of those little girls in high school that was, you know, considered an ugly duckling and I knew it. I knew it. Everyone told me I was and I knew it. I knew it. I loved the little Farrah Fawcett trying to loop, loop, and I tried to do the loop, but I couldn't do it. My fate, I had grown from five foot zero to five foot seven in one year and never gave him. Don't you wish you could get that metabolism back? I mean, that's all I care about right now. But, um, but I was very awkward, and I had no friends. And so I didn't have any friends because of fear of rejection. So if you have a fear of rejection, you reject people before they can reject you. So I was very, very much alone. I had um, buck teeth, as I said before. And, and you know, uh, back then, they didn't have those cute little braces that girls wear these days. You know, they had these, like, big metal bands that go around every single tooth, right? And then we wore these headgears <laughs> around our heads 24 hours a day. And then I had size 10 shoes, which I still have size 10 shoes, but when you're 105 pounds, they look like cross-country skis. <laughs> so my brother says, you look like someone with cross-country skis <laughs> on a satellite reception station because <laughs> of my headgear. And I knew it. People bullied me all the time. I was bullied all the time. And, and I remember in high school, I would hold my books close to my um, chest because I was so flat-chested and I just, I did not grow like the other girls did. And I was not popular and I didn't have friends. And so I would, my, my um, locker was downstairs in the lower level of the school. And so I, I would go to my locker but just hold my eyes down because I didn't want anyone to see me. Because I knew that if they looked into my eyes, I could see I knew that they could see the real me. I was hiding the real me so much because the real me carried visions of what was happening to me when I was seven and eight years old being molested by someone that I was supposed to trust. I never told my parents, never told anybody about it because it was just another one of those secrets that I kept in my heart. And if anyone saw that, even boys, if they knew that about me, they wouldn't want to date me. I was damaged goods. So I would, I would hold my books to my chest and I would go down to the locker and people would trip me. They would trip me all the time because of my big feet and I was so awkward. I never told, went home and told my parents this because my father was a, a great mind. He had a mind like a steel trap and he knew everything and he was totally into the, to the, you know, the, you know, fake it till you make it. Never let them see you sweat. You know, you're only as big as the smallest thing you let bother you. And he could see that I was awkward, but he never made me feel awkward. He was always just very, very encouraging. Just be strong because it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world out there. And they'll eat you alive. 
So what he was trying to do in his love is trying to build up a courage level in me so that I would not walk around in my greatest fear. Well, my greatest fear, I will tell you this now, I had three great fears. Number one was I was afraid of flying. Number two, I was afraid of public speaking. (laughs) And number three, I was afraid of Christians. Isn't it funny how I grow up to fly around the country speaking to Christian women? (laughs) God will take your greatest fear and he will turn it around. But at that time, it was so severe. My only thing that I wanted to do was achieve a scholarship in college. And I just, I just, I loved my books and I still love studying. My greatest favorite thing to do is to leave for three weeks at a time and take nothing but books and just study and study and study. I love to study. Just love it. But I would take an F just so that I wouldn't speak have to speak or give a book report. I would take an F because my fear of people was greater than my desire to get a good grade. That's a lot of fear. By the time I got to college, um, I gained a little bit of weight. The braces came off. The Estee lighter came on, right? <laughs> was able to do the little Farrah flip, which I think I still have. Just kidding. Uh, but the thing is, is that no one can take that fear. I mean, you can't, it doesn't matter how much makeup you put on, no one's going to be able to take that. You can't cover that fear. And you can't cover the shame. And so as I lived in Utah, it's either you become a Mormon or you just, you just don't fit in anywhere. And I just didn't fit in. And there wasn't anything in the middle. There was either the Mormons where I was going to school or there was the party crowd. And so I just fell into the party crowd, and, and I just started drinking. And, you know, I found out that if you drink alcohol and do drugs, you can literally numb your life and numb your way through life. And I thought, wow, this is really great because I could become that which I always wanted to be, which was not afraid. But what happens is if you don't believe in something, you'll fall for anything. And I began to fall for the traps of the boys, you know, uh, uh, wanting things that I was not prepared ahead of time as to how to how to protect yourself from that. And so I learned that if I drink alcohol, then I can make decisions that I would normally not make, and I just moved right into that place that I thought the world wanted me to be. No one ever knew on the outside, me on the outside, what the fear I had on the inside. But anyone that tried to approach me with a Christian message, I would just rebuke. I would just rebuke it. In fact, I was so afraid of people that I learned that if you study well enough and you can become articulate enough, you can literally outthink your opponent. This is how it got, this is how it began. It was fear that began this whole process of not wanting anyone to tell me about Jesus Christ. And so I studied philosophy. My major was in business, but I did a double major in philosophy for the sole purpose of learning how to argue against the existence of God. Because I didn't want anyone to see the real me on the inside. Because if they really saw the real me on the inside, they would reject me too. And I knew God had already rejected me because I had learned that if you want to go to heaven, you have to be good. And I figured I knew that when I was seven years old. You see, you can't be good enough to go to heaven. There was absolutely no way that everyone around me looked good enough. But I knew me and I was not good enough. By the time I was 30 years old, um... I was a full-blown alcoholic. I, was, I, was, I had a job, had a really, really important job. I was able to accomplish that. 
just from sheer determination and, and overcoming the fears, but nothing could overcome this shame that I have in me. In fact, I dated a few people, but, but I, I was not married at the age of 30 because I was damaged goods. This is all the lies that I began to believe about myself. And anyone that came around me to try to tell me, no, that's not the way you are. You're not damaged goods. You, you, people love you. God loves you. And it's like, God doesn't love me. If he loved me, then all these things wouldn't have happened to me without me knowing that I actually perpetuated the things that happened. I made the decisions in my life to reject and rebel against God. I can remember a lot of people even taking the Bible and try to open it up and say, see, it says that he loves you to me. I said, that book doesn't mean anything to me. And so what I would do is I would push against anyone that tried to share with me the truth. I would push against it and turn it into a lie. I would use all my philosophical tools that I was given in college to, exit, to, to actually guard against my heart from anything that would say that you are loved. And so I would reject them and force that. I can remember, I will just say this, that I had perfected the argument so much that in order to, my final grade in college, and it was my thesis that was entered in, but I had to back it up with a debate. And I, the, the, it was random, it's just a random thing, and it wasn't, I don't think anything is random in God right now, this is not my belief system, but back then, it was a random pulling from a hat as to what your subject would be. Will you be able to, will you argue for God or the existence, or the non-existence of God? And I literally pulled from the hat, you're supposed to, your debate is against the existence of God. And my opponent was a returned Mormon missionary that I knew, knew the Bible better than I did. So I couldn't use the Bible because you can't study the Bible in one semester in order to be able to argue against it. So I argued from a scientific standpoint. Do you know if you study something well enough, you can literally brainwash yourself into believing that it is true? And that's exactly what happened. Both of us got an A on that grade. But what happened to me is that it reinforced in me that, that I was more effective at arguing against God so that I would never have to see that I was literally loved. That's what rejection will do. Rejection from a young age will actually bring in some of these belief systems that you will fall for them. When I was 30 years old, I will share this story with you because this is so key. This is so key to me. I, I, no one can debate me into faith. Anybody ever try to do that? Try to say, well, you know what? That's not really true. Have you ever shouted to people that don't know the Lord? You know, and you just, you just you say that they're living a lifestyle that God would not love. I mean, I had that shouted at me all the time as a full-blown alcoholic. And by the age of 30, I was in Bur on Bourbon Street in New Orleans during the final four. You ever heard of the Final Four? It's basketball. Okay. So basketball, I mean, there were 20,000 children. I say children. They were kids. I was one of them, actually 30. It feels like I'm 50, over 50 now. So it's like, I can say that, 53. No, maybe I'm 52. I'm almost <laughs> Okay, so it doesn't matter. But anyway, there were people half my age there now. But at that time, it was the greatest party ever. It felt like um, Mardi Gras. The party just never ended. And as I was walking down the street, I could see all kinds of street shows going on. There was a tarot card reader over here, and there was a, a jazz musician over here. And there was a, uh, I don't know, a, a different kind. Of, but I saw on that far left corner, a street corner evangelist. And he was shouting, and he had his Bible out there, and I thought, wow, that is a show I want to see. 
And I felt really bad for him because everyone else had a large crowd around them, but the street corner evangelists shouting at the, all the drunk people didn't have anyone there. I felt really bad for him, so I thought I could help him out. <laughs> I mean, that's what he was looking for, right? He was looking for someone to debate back. And I already had all the, all the, uh, you know, the answers to everything. <laughs> so I ran up to him, and, and just to help him, I started shouting back at him. And he was sharing stuff, and I would, I would rebuke what he was saying with the greatest, strongest argument. I wanted him to debate with me because, you know, obviously he was really good at what he did. The crowd started coming around because they liked what I was doing. But you know what that street corner evangelist did? He looked at me sitting, standing on the street, and he saw exactly what was going on. I will tell you this right now. In the Bible, there's a scripture that says, those who are in Christ are a new creation. The old is gone, and the new has come. Have you heard that scripture before? Some of us have learned that from the very beginning of the time. And how many of us know the scripture right before that? You know that therefore is therefore for a reason. You know what 2 Corinthians 5, 16, which is the scripture right before that says? It says that if you're in Christ, you no longer see people from a worldly point of view. That has more power than 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Because it's evidence you see, that three-quarter evangelist looked at me and he knew what was going on. He knew I couldn't agree with him. Because without God, you can't see God. Without the Spirit, without faith, we can't see his face. We can't shout from the mountains or even shout to the mountains. Because the reason for that is because we have never known him. It is not an intellectual thing. It has nothing to do with debate. If we debate someone and debate them back, that's not going to open up a faith life. It is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. This man saw exactly what was going on in me. And you know what? For the very first time in my entire life, I saw love. He looked at me and he said, darling, as they do in the South. <laughs> it wasn't, I didn't feel condemned. But he said, darling, he says, you don't have to do that anymore. He says, you're just looking for your long lost love, that's all. And his name is Jesus. I remember standing there going, what? <laughs> I don't have an argument against that. You see, I could argue against intellectual uh, 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 ideas, but I could never argue against love. There was an incredible love that wrapped around me. That day he says, you know, you are here. You're supposed to be here. He was going to say, you're drunk and you're going to go to hell. No, no, I was three sheets to the wind. And it was three o'clock in the morning. But that man did not look at me and say anything to me. Like, you shouldn't be here. He says, you're exactly where you're supposed to be. What? And I tried to say something, but there was nothing I could say. In fact, it felt as though my feet were in cement and that my mouth was stuck shut so that my ears were starting to listen to what he had to say. He says, you are here because everything in your life has brought you here and you are not judged by that. You're not judged or defined by anything that anyone has ever done to you or that you have done to anyone else. Okay, there's no argument against that. He says, you are not defined 
he says, and he walked and he told about the Father's love. Not the Father's condemnation, but the Father's love. And you know why he says, if Jesus, he said this thing, he says, if Jesus were walking on Bourbon Street right now in 1993 with blue jeans on, do you know who he would choose to dine with? And he says, incidentally, to dine with someone in the biblical days was the greatest honor that you could get. He says, you know who he would dine with? I'm not thinking this is a trick question. I'm not going in. I'm, I'm totally, totally vulnerable here. And he didn't care. He says, you know what? He would choose you. He says, Jesus hung out with the most peculiar people. <laughs> he would choose you. He should choose you. Right here, right now, he would say, do you want to have the I thought, now, that I have never heard. I never heard that. I have, I'm, this is too good to be true. <laughs> and then he went on to say that, you know what, Jesus loves you so much because he hung out with all these people. You know, it was the religious community that was really mad at him. But you know what he loved him? It was the prostitutes, and it was the lepers, and it was the tax collectors, and it was the liars, and it was the thieves. He says even the person on the cross, he says the person, the first person he invited into paradise, he says, was on death. He says he loved us so much that he went to the cross and he took away the sins of the world. He says, as far as the east is from the west, your sins are remembered no more. Every decision that you have made has been wiped clean as though none of it had been made. In fact, when Jesus sees you, he sees himself. He sees love. He sees love everlasting. And he says these words. He said these words, I'll never forget it. He says, if you open your heart and allow him to just Bring in this love of truth. This truth, he says, you will hear these words, and I will never forget. He, will, he says, you will hear these words. The words are, your sin is forgiven. Now, he said that's not even the good news. The good news is, is that he died on the cross and took all the way the sins of the way of the world. I, I remember going, this is just, this is crazy. No one's ever said this to me. Everyone has ever said that I am so bad I will never go to heaven. And he says, no, that's not it. The good news is, is that he rose from the dead. He overcame death and he is alive today. He is alive today and he's sitting on the right hand side of the fire. But he's also alive in those who receive him as Lord. Because in that moment, say, I believe. I believe. He will take up residency in your heart and he will clear out all those lives of the past. Oh, it's not going to make life. Your life is going to go on continue the same. Life won't change out here, but you will change in the middle of life. Oh, this was too good to be true. I'm telling you, I thought, no way. No one has ever said this. He never once told me that I was going to go to He Never once did he tell me that. I already knew. I already knew. When he says that you are love, I thought, wow, you can't argue against love. And of course, he gave me the decision to make that. He gave me a chance to make that decision. I'm sorry, I'm going to have to look. I wish I could still see like I did when I was 30 years old. <laughs> All right. I, I, but I had a decision to make, right? I had a big, tall beer that I just poured in one hand. And I had eternal life in the other hand. 
And I had a decision, I had to make. Which one am I going to choose? I chose the beer. And I turned around and walked away and I said, no, that's too good to be true, because I've never heard this from any Christian I ever met. It can't be true. It can't be true. I've always seen Christians be so angry at the world and loud. Never once did I have anyone say that you are right where you are. So I walked away. Now, as an alcoholic, you find yourselves in bar stools, and of course, I traveled in different country or different parts of the state to do my sales training. I was a sales trainer. You know what I was doing? I was trying to teach people how to manipulate. How to manipulate their decisions. So I knew if you're going to teach someone how to manipulate decisions, then this person was trying to manipulate me. That's how I saw it. Why? Because I didn't have truth in me. I could not discern whether this is real or not real. And so, I would find myself on the bar stool one time in 1993. I'm in Columbus, Ohio, and there was a banner behind the bar. There was a banner behind the bar, and it said, Billy Graham's coming to jail. <laughs> now that's marvelous. Okay. That's awesome. And I remember looking at that, and even though I did not make a decision for Christ that day, there was something that was planted in my heart, and it began to grow. What if? What if that was true? What if? But what it was, it was the seed of God saying, I'm looking for you. I'm looking for you. I'm looking for you. So six months later, God bless you. Six months later, I'm sitting on the bar stool and I looked at that and I go, wow, I feel like I should go to that. And the bartender looked at me. Now, needless to say, I had a very interesting conversation with this bartender who happened to be a homosexual. And she was sharing about her life. And I've never had homosexual tendencies, but I was really interested in learning about her. And it's like, so we're talking about this stuff. And again, this is 20 years ago. It wasn't really the big issue that it is today. But it was, I was just like listening to her go, wow, but God bless you. God bless you. You just need a blessing. That's all. Yes, amen. So anyway, I'm, I'm talking to this bartender, and, and I said, gosh, I feel like I should go to this Billy Graham thing. And she looked at me, and she looked at how much I had to drink. And she looked at me again, she says, maybe you should. <laughs> Do you know who gave me permission? A homosexual bartender. That morning, I woke up on a Sunday morning. I've never woken up early on a Sunday morning. I had a headache of all headaches, a hangover of all hangovers. I got up out of bed, and I, I'm, I, I was like, okay, Columbus, Ohio is not where I lived. I lived in Arizona, right? But I was going to figure out where the stadium was. And so I got into my car, and I drove. There was 45 minutes of traffic just to get into the parking lot. Now, as, as a hangover uh, person, person with a hangover, shall I say, I, any other time I would have turned around and walked away, turned around and, and drove back home, go back to bed, but something was drawing me to go. I didn't know what it was, but it felt, so, it felt like just a drawing. And so it was pouring down rain. I had no rain gear, but it didn't matter because for some reason I felt like I was supposed to go there anyway. Even though it was an outdoor stadium, I would be sitting in the rain. That's very, very uncomfortable. I get out of my car in the rain. I'm walking in there, and I go into the stadium, and there's 65,000 Christians. That is not where an atheist wants to be. 
And I remember, I'm not going to look at anyone. It took me back to my high school years. And if people saw how fearful I was, I would become live bait to their to a continuous onslaught of hatred and, and bullying. So, I, But I looked at these people and I knew that they could see right into my soul because that street corner evangelist six months ago read my mail. I feel like I can say, you know, these, these Christians, they just, they will be able to see exactly how damaged I am. I'm not going to look at that. I don't, I don't want to, I'm just going to come because I don't want to talk to anybody. And I remember as I was sitting there, Billy Graham came out. And it, it's just, you know, there's certain things that you remember. You, you remember the MPC news guys in, in Living Color. You, you remember the ice capades. There are memories that you will never forget. And I will tell you, this memory was burned into my, burned into my soul. As soon as Billy Graham went out there, and Billy Graham is just as normal and ordinary as you and me. But the Lord opened up the, it just almost opened up the, the sky for the light to shine, and it stopped raining at that time. And so I was not distracted by anything. I could hear exactly what Billy Graham was saying. He said the same exact thing to that crowd of 65,000 that that street corner evangelist said to me at 3 o'clock in the morning. He said, Come. Just as you are. You don't have to clean up your act. In fact, you can't clean up your act. If you could, you would, but you can't, so you won't. Come. Because only he can do the work. No one's going to make you do the work. It's not for you to do, it's for him to do through you. I can't tell you how many times I tried to stop drinking, I tried to stop drinking. I never went to AA because it says you had to believe in a higher power. So where does the alcoholic atheist go? <laughs> to a Billy Graham crusade. <laughs> I can remember sitting there and something was battling within me. I really wanted to go. I really, really did. But you know what? This is just too good to be true because I know manipulation. I used to teach it. I teach it. How to manipulate a buyer into buying something. Now I believe in sales. I do believe in sales. I made a whole career of sales. I'm not saying that every salesperson is a manipulator. Please understand that. But something was broken inside of me that knew that there was, you cannot trust anyone. <coughs> this can't be true, and I figured it's all about the money. I know it's all about the money. This is how critical my heart was. But then it was free. It can't be about the money. But it's just something else. But I wanted to go forward, and I really did. And as soon as I stood up, that old that I've known for so many years, fear entered my heart. And it's like, okay, this is not real. This, this ain't real. I've never been seen a Christian, had friends with Christians that I had a fellowship with. All I knew was Christians that were shouting against my lifestyle, not that not, not one that would come along with me. And so I just knew that this can't be true. And so I ran out the door as fast as I could. I ran out the door. I ran out the, actually, the stadium steps against the crowd that was coming down. I, I, everyone was coming down. And they were just like, they were just, I looked into their eyes, but they weren't looking into mine. All they wanted to do was to move into that uncreated, unstoppable, unrelenting love of God that was just drawing them forward into the saving knowledge of love, forgiveness. And I ran as best I could. All I needed to do and all I wanted to do is to go back into the life from which I came and I would be fine. I ran out the door and as soon as I opened up the doors and I was out there, I thought I would feel relief. But instead, what I felt 
was a place that I didn't belong. Like the world didn't only value me anymore. Here I am thinking I'm getting to the place where I need to go back because at least I know that and it didn't hold any value. And I can't go back in there with those Christians. What I thought was a freak show. So what I found is that I had the two worlds colliding and here I am stuck in the middle and I knew I had to make a decision. If I can just get to my car, I'm going to be fine. I just need to get to the car. And as I'm walking along the chain link fence, I didn't go directly to my car. I'm walking along the chain link fence, trying to hold on to the chain link fence. Link, link to link to link. Where's my car? But at the same time, I could hear Billy Graham over the last speaker because it's an outdoor event. And he said these words. He says, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, and thy will be done. And when he said, On earth as it is in heaven, I knew my knees were going to get out. My knees were shaking. I felt as that. It's the exact same way when Stephanie was singing that song. Exact same way. Exact same way. Oh, I would have wanted to know what Lori shared with us on the scripture, but there was absolutely nothing in me that could understand or relate to any of that. And as soon as he said that, I grabbed a hold of the fence with both hands, and my knees gave out. And in that moment, in that moment, I began to cry. And I began to burst forth. Everything within me just started to cry and cry and cry and cry. You know, it wasn't a cry of shame. It was a cry being so surrounded by love that I had never experienced love like that before. I had never known love like that that says you are exactly where you're supposed to be. I don't know how long I was there, but I was there long enough for the whole entire stadium to empty out. And everyone knew that I was having an experience, I would imagine, because no one interrupted that time. It was one-on-one -on -one time with me and Jesus. And as I stood up, I was changed. I was changed. I was saved in 1993, September, October. I missed it in March, right? Because madness. But I was saved in 1993 in the parking lot of a Billy Graham crusade. <laughs> running away from God. Do you see? He's got his divine ring around our belt loops and he's saying, go ahead, keep it up, keep it up, keep it up. But I had absolutely no knowledge because no one said that this would happen. Everything changed in my life. Everything changed in my life. After that time, I was delivered from alcoholism. After that time, the Lord, and this is another story that I won't share with you, but after that time, I married the man of my dreams. One month after the Billy Graham crusade, after I was saved in the parking lot, my God, he's just brought me in. And I was, my heart was open, just a mustard-sized seed of faith. I mean, I'm talking about, it took this much faith for me to say, Maybe. And he flooded my whole entire experience and he took my heart out and gave me a new heart. And Matt met me at a, at, in, in Cincinnati, Ohio, where I met Matt. We met each other, right? He took me out to dinner that night and he said the name of Jesus. And I said, You know him too? <laughs> and he said, Aaron, he's been known for 2,000 years. Where have you been? I said, I absolutely know 
I literally had no idea. No matter how hard we try to change people, they can't change. Only He can change us. Only He can say, I love you that much. I'm going to bring you into my embrace just as you are. You don't have to do anything. But I love you so much that I'm going to keep you where you are. You're going to grow from the inside out, from glory to glory. And then I find myself at an outpost, and I'm sitting here with all of these lovely women who I have just discovered Jesus Christ. And they said, you know what? Me too. She had no ability to have use of thoughts because of the disease 
has so ruined her brain. But God brought her into a moment of complete clarity when the whole entire room filled up with heaven for her. And she sat up and she shared about everyone that was in that room with her. There was no one in the room except for me. But she described heaven. She described the smells and the colors and who was there. She shared that her father was there and that her mother was there and that her sister was there. And she went on and was sharing. I said, what is that? Did you say MK was there? Her sister. I did not tell my mother that just a few days before when my sister, her sister had passed away. My mother, her body was shutting down. She was in a, a coma. She couldn't have known this. I said, you mean Aunt Kay's dead? And she goes, oh no, she's very much alive. <laughs> she was seen scared. And so I was totally in this experience with my mother. And I said, oh mom, can you see Jesus? Is he there? And she goes, oh, Jesus is here. I said, oh, tell me what he looks like. I just want to make sure our picture is on the <laughs> church foyer. <laughs> and she looked and she squinted and she squinted. She goes, I can't see his face. I can't see his face. It's too bright. I can't see his face. My mother has never studied Revelation. She has absolutely no idea that Christ comes and his face is so no one this side of heaven can see the face of God. But we can behold his glory, this side of grace. She did not know this. She starts to cry, and I feel really bad because my mother's heavenly experience just became a terrible experience. So I told her, I said, oh, mother, oh, this is so wonderful. I'm so sorry. My brother flies into town, and as my mother was taking her last breath, I kid you not, we have a witness here. My brother saw this. And after this experience, he would come to know Jesus Christ. But as my mother's witness, she got the witness on her mouth and she never said a word. You see, there's, a, there's no greater witness in a changed life and there's no other explanation My mother was unconscious. She was breathing. Her breath was labored and labored and labored. And soon, as she was taking her last breath, she opened her eyes and she went, <sighs> And we were looking over her thinking that this was it. But she just became awake. Yet she wasn't looking at us. And we're kind of like... She was looking through us. And you know what? She never took another breath after that. She literally had a smile on her face with her eyes wide open. And my brother said, what just happened? And I saw Dan. Mom just saw Jesus. If any of you are sitting here, probably many of you have gone to church your entire life. Maybe you heard all about them. Maybe you could share every single Bible study. But you probably have never seen him in living color. Or some of you are like me, never ever stepped foot in a church. And you're wondering why you're sitting here. But there might be something in your belly that's wanting you to run out the door. I'm just saying that that is the love of God. It's not the condemnation of God. It's the love of God that says no matter what your addiction, 
no matter what your affliction, no matter what your fear, no matter who's trying to call you on the cell phone right now. <laughs> that God has ordered the steps for every single thing to happen for us to be right here, right now. I'd just like to ask you to close your eyes with me and And I'll just bless that person on the other side of the phone because they have a lot of distraction. They have a love. They have a love. So, Father, I just ask right now in Jesus' name that you will make yourself known. The love that brings us into that holy embrace that says we are just so in need, so in need. So in fear of what you can do to us. But Lord, I just pray, God, that, that, that the message of your good news is that it's not what you're going to do to us, it's what you can do for us and with us and in us. So if you are just wondering right now if this is for you, I would just ask that you will just take a hold of that chain link fence with all your Hold on to that and pray this, this prayer with me. Heavenly Father, I do not even know if this is real. Do not even know. But Father, I choose to believe in you, in your Son Jesus Christ, in the death of the cross that took away the sins of the world, the resurrection of Christ. And that your son is alive with you today in heavenly realms. And I just give my entire existence to you, my life to you, my heart to you, and just a little bit of trust that you 